please hear the word of God. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light flashed. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray. Almighty God, now as we have read your word, and as we have seen... Um, you revealing yourself to Saul, this persecutor of the church. I pray that you would help us to glimpse the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as he pursued uh, Paul the sinner and as he uh, showered him with mercy and grace. Father, I pray that uh, you would give us wisdom now as, um, as we hear your word um, proclaimed this morning. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Um, as I was Friday night, I'm still struggling a bit this morning uh, with this cold, so I'm going to continue to stay away from uh, everyone this morning as much as possible. As I studied this passage through the week, I was intent on answering one question, and that question was, what were the elements of Paul's conversion? And so I outlined the sermon accordingly. However, um, after the bulletin was printed, I found myself continually taking my focus off of Paul and off of the elements of his conversion. And I placed my focus more and more on Jesus Christ and his glory. I say this to tell you that you can basically ignore the outline that is printed on the back of the bulletin this morning. We're going to spend a lot more time looking at Jesus this morning uh, than we will looking at the Apostle Paul. That being said, however, uh, we have to first look at Paul because Christ's glory is revealed in Acts chapter 9 by his merciful and sovereign conversion of this man who so thoroughly hated Christ and his followers. Also, a prefatory, is that right? In preface, I need to say that uh, Paul's name before he was converted was Saul. The Bible does not tell us the circumstances that led to his name change. In Acts chapter 9, even after his conversion, he is only called Saul. And after Acts chapter 9... Uh, Saul disappears um, from the book of Acts until you come to Acts chapter 13. And even there, through the first half of 
um, chapter 13, he's called Saul, until you come to verse 9. And then Luke simply says, Saul, who was also called Paul, and then went on to say uh, something uh, about, um, about Paul. And from, from thence forward, we don't hear anything more. We, we don't find Luke uh, calling him Saul anymore. We find him calling him Paul. And so, like I said, we don't know the exact circumstances as to why he changed his name. Uh, but I say that because this morning uh, in our text, he is referred to as Saul. And I am going to try to refer to him as Saul. I'm going to end up, I know by habit, uh, calling him Paul. But um, I just wanted to give you that, that little uh, alert as we begin. That it's going to be probably three-quarters Saul and a quarter Paul this morning. Uh, and that is completely unintentional. So remember... The last time we saw Saul was at Stephen's stoning. In Acts chapter 1 it says Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then Acts 3 says that Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Saul was so zealous in his desire to destroy the church that he expanded the persecution which he started in Jerusalem and he expanded it out beyond Jerusalem. Uh, Christians, wherever they fled, Paul felt, must be pursued and rooted out. His desire was to drag them back to Jerusalem in chains. Paul, in his defense before Agrippa, excuse me, in Acts chapter 26, recounted just how badly he hated Christians. He said to Agrippa, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. And so that's what we find Paul doing here in the text. He is on his way to Damascus because he has received word that Christians have fled there. Damascus is not in Israel. Damascus is about 250 miles north of Jerusalem. So you can see his zeal in his hatred for Christianity, he's willing to travel there so that he can bring these Christians back in chains. And in our text, in verse 1, uh, Acts 9-1, it says that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He is not simply content to arrest men. Verse 2 says that he was seeking to arrest men and women that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now let me make, let me pause uh, real quickly to make a point that I've made uh, a few times in the past weeks as we were looking at the persecution that broke out uh, in regard or in response to Stephen's sermon. Uh, It's such an important point that I want to take multiple opportunities to say it. And the point is that the persecution that Saul and others carried out against the early Christians really did occur. Christians were arrested, they languished in prison, and many were executed. We have Paul's testimony right here that it wasn't just Stephen. But it was many other Christians who were executed simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And even today, around the world, Christians are suffering hardship. They are suffering persecution. They are even suffering death for their faith. Justin even told me about some of the struggles that he had in his uh, studies for his Ph.D. simply because of his faith in Jesus Christ and his belief that the Bible is the Word of God. We have an immature faith if we believe that God will simply uh, protect us from all forms of hardship. God promises to work all things together for our good, just as He promised the early Christians. The promise that He would work all things together for good was just as true to those early Christians who were persecuted as it is for us today. But the good that He promises to work together for us is not an exclusion from hardship. Many Christians redefine God's promise to work out all things together for our good as God wants to make us happy. Or God has promised to to keep me happy, to keep me away from hardship. When in reality, this promise to work all things together for our good is a promise to make us more like Jesus Christ. And He is so intent on making us more like Jesus Christ. And He so knows that that is what is best for us, to become more like Jesus Christ, that He is willing to put us through the pressure cooker of suffering to make us more like Jesus To think that God simply wants to make us happy is an immature approach to the Christian life. Likewise, the idea that good Christians don't have pain or disappointment is a juvenile understanding of how God works in our life. God uses our pain. He uses our disappointments to help us grow in our faith and help us trust in Him. That's the end of my side note, so let's continue looking at the text. It was about noon, as Saul was was drawing near to the city of Damascus, when a light brighter than the sun itself uh, flashed around, uh, around Saul. And if you're wondering where I'm getting these details about the fact that it was noon and the fact, and the fact that it was, this light was brighter than, um, than, the action, than the sun, I'm getting these details uh, from Saul's account of his conversion in Acts chapter 26. 
but don't get distracted by turning to Acts chapter 26 now. I'm, you don't need to turn there. Um, I'm just filling in some of the details from Paul's um, from from his account as he is um, giving his defense before Agrippa. Anyway, Saul, when the when the light shone down upon him. Uh, he was so stunned by the brilliance of the light that he fell down to the ground. And when he fell down to the ground, he heard a voice in Aramaic saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in the Acts 26 account, uh, Saul gives a little bit more of what Jesus said to him. Jesus went on to say, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Many commentators take this uh, phrase, kicking against the goads, to suggest that Saul's conscience had already been pricked and that uh, he was beginning to feel the pains of conscience, but he was ignoring it. I I read it a, a little differently. I think it means that Saul's conscience was so filled with hatred for Christians that he could not possibly feel the pains of conscience. I believe his hatred was fueled by his jealousy over Stephen's sermon. Remember, he was there giving approval to Stephen's death. And he heard the power of Stephen's preaching. He saw Stephen's countenance at death while he was being stoned. And he had this sweet, peaceful countenance. In fact, Stephen was praying, God forgive them for what they are doing even as he was being stoned to death. So I believe that Paul, or Saul, um, uh, saw something in Stephen that he didn't have, and he coveted it. That's why I believe Saul said in Romans chapter 7, I would not know what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetous desires. And so, it's a little bit of speculation on my part. But it seems to me that this covetousness drove his hatred and his covetousness was probably born out of his jealousy for the power and the peace that Stephen had that Paul witnessed that Paul himself did not have. In other words, Saul hates Christians And his hatred is growing by the day. But what's remarkable is that Jesus Christ pursued Paul. Paul wasn't feeling pains of conscience. He wasn't getting ready to repent. He was breathing out threats and murder against the Christians. And here comes Jesus. Literally out of the clear blue sky. Out of heaven. And he is pursuing Paul, or Saul. There was not any inkling in Saul to trust Jesus. Jesus is pursuing Saul, not because of any goodness in Saul. Jesus is pursuing Saul, not because of any foresight of Saul's eventual fate. Jesus is pursuing Saul simply because Jesus is full of mercy and grace. What's the difference between mercy and grace? 
Well, mercy is God not punishing us as our sins deserve. That's mercy. Saul deserved condemnation. Saul deserved damnation. And he knew it. In 1 Timothy, near the end of his life, he wrote, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So that's mercy. He did not receive the condemnation and the damnation that he deserved because of his sins. Grace, however, is just a little bit different. Grace is God's blessing us even though we don't, we don't deserve it. It's not simply the withholding of punishment. It's the actual bestowal of blessing. Jesus is... Not only not punishing Saul for his heinous sins, but he is giving him a relationship with God, which includes perfect righteousness and eternal life. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Jesus is a Savior for sinners. There is no one here this morning that is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. Jesus is able to reach down into the very hardest of hearts and and give His mercy and His grace. He is able to reach down into the, the hardest of hearts and bring them to Himself. He is able to forgive the most heinous and hateful of sins. People like to tell me that they won't come to church because the roof might cave in on their heads or that lightning might strike them. I think they just give themselves too much credit. Nobody is beyond the mercy or beyond the reach of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ our Savior. Now that we've seen the mercy and grace of Jesus, I also want you to see the sovereignty of Jesus. Because here in this passage, you don't see Jesus begging Saul to come to him. Listen to it. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Where do you see, where, where do you even get a hint that Jesus is begging Saul to come to him? Jesus is not up in heaven biting his fingernails hoping that Saul will pray the sinner's prayer. He answers Saul's question as Saul asks, who, who are you? Jesus simply says, I am Jesus whom you were persecuted. And then, the very next thing he says is, Get up and go into the city where you will be told what you are to do. Jesus doesn't say, You will be told what you should do if you so choose. That's not what he says at all. As if Saul had a choice in the matter. 
Literally in the Greek it reads, you will be told what it is necessary for you to do. Jesus doesn't ask Saul's permission. Neither does he ask him if he's willing to do it. He simply commanded of him, get up and go into the city. And then you will be told what is um, further what I am uh, what I am commanding of you. So what did Saul do? He got up from the ground and he went into the city. But he needed help. Why did he need help? He needed help because he was blind. I believe it is well. It is certain that the apostle Paul or Saul. Um, when Jesus shone this light down, that he looked directly into that light. The reason why I know it's certain that he did this um, is because uh, in Paul's letters, he, re- he, he tells about his conversion and he tells how he saw the risen Lord uh, face to face. And that was a requirement for an apostle to see the risen Lord face to face. And so he looked up into this, this blinding light that was brighter than the sun and he saw the Lord Jesus. And if it's dangerous to look directly at the sun, as we have all been told from our childhood, then it is surely dangerous to look directly into the blazing glory of Jesus. But Saul looked. He saw Jesus. And it left him completely helpless. Do you remember that... That little—it's in the, the the Gospel of John when the the, the uh, guards came out to arrest Jesus while he was in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and they asked Jesus, "Are you Jesus?" And he simply said, "I am." In Greek, "Ego me." And all of a sudden, they all fall back down on the ground. I think Jesus just peeled back just a little of his glory. If he had shown them his full glory. They would have been blown in, into smithereens. And I believe that, that Jesus is revealing more of his glory, but not the full, the full extent of it. And Saul is left completely helpless. He's blind and he cannot even take care of, of himself. Abby has a hamster uh, named Pepper. And Pepper is at the end of his life expectancy. However, instead of dying, he has suffered a severe stroke. And so he is blind and he is helpless. We have to take him out of the cage and he just just lays there. And so we have to hold him in our hand and we have to, to, to hold the water bottle up for him to drink. And so he drinks the water, and we have to do this several times a day. And then we can take tweezers and, and pick out the um, sunflower seeds and hold them up to his mouth. And he can't even really grasp them with his hand, but he can chew on them and then swallow them. It's amazing how many sunflower seeds he can swallow in his mouth at once. Um, but uh, he's just completely helpless. And this pretty well describes the limits of Paul's uh, or Saul's abilities after this encounter with Jesus. Now he can stand unlike our hamster, 
But he could not eat or drink for three days, and he's left completely blind. I don't believe Saul was fasting out of repentance when it says that he did not eat or drink for three days. I believe, along with F.F. Bruce, the commentator, that Saul was simply in shock and was not able to eat or drink. I'm going to bring this sermon to a close rather quickly by making one point. And that point is, do not trifle with Jesus Christ. He is not someone to be taken lightly. He is not the heavenly bellhop that many think him to be. He is not weak and impotent. He is God Almighty. And the fact that he is full of mercy and grace does not imply any weakness on his part. The fact that he died to forgive sins does not mean that he winks at sin. Two subpoints. The first subpoint is directed toward Christians. Just because you have trusted in Jesus Christ and have received forgiveness for your sins, do not take that forgiveness as a license for sin. The Bible says that when you commit sins willfully as a Christian, that you are taking Jesus and you are folding him up for contempt. Hebrews chapter 6. God will give you the grace to say no to sin, no matter how badly you are tempted. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No sin has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God will give you grace. He will give you a way out so that you can stand up under it. This same Jesus, who is sovereign over salvation who is God Almighty, who holds the entire world in His hands, gives you His power to say no to sin. Do not hold Him up for contempt. Do not dishonor Him. Look to Him. Seek His power, His mercy, His grace that you may honor Him in your words, in your thoughts, in your actions. He's not one to be trifled with. And you as a Christian know it. And second sub-point is to non-Christians. Come to Him now if you have never come to Him. Don't kick against the goads any longer. He is a good Savior who offered Himself in the place for your sins. Why would you live one more day apart from Him? Let's pray together. Almighty God, I thank You for the glory of Jesus Christ that is displayed here in the conversion of the of, of, of Saul, the persecutor of the church. We thank you for the glory of Jesus that was displayed in our own lives by our own conversion, by him coming and seeking us while we were only seeking to go our own ways. Lord Jesus, I pray. If there are any Christians here who are struggling 
with besetting sins. I pray that you would remind them of your grace and your power, of your glory and of your sovereignty. And I pray that you would help them to overcome because you have made them more than overcomers through him who loved us. Father, for any unbelievers who might be here this this morning, I pray that you would draw them sweetly yet powerfully to Jesus Christ. I ask this in his name. Amen.